Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. I'm David Lavalley, and we're very excited today to branch out a little bit from our favorite endurance sport, running, to bring you an amateur cyclist who recently broke a world record. Jonathan Schubert is the first person to complete a 100 mile ride in less than three hours. His time of 2.57 meant that he traveled at more than 30 miles per hour over open roads with traffic alongside him. Jonathan is a science teacher and it shows. He explains in simple language the physics behind his record-setting ride. More importantly, Jonathan is a thoughtful and adventurous athlete. We loved hearing his story about cycling across Iran at a time when Americans and Europeans were not exactly favored by the government but welcomed warmly nonetheless by everyday people he met during his travels. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. Hello there, David. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So uh, thanks for making time for us. My pleasure. Absolutely. So uh, has the the fame and fortune gotten to your head now? Oh, I don't think think it's ever going to sink in. But it's been it's been it's been really heartwarming actually the uh, the positivity and the response from from all around the world for from people who've enjoyed my exploits over here in the UK um, quite humbling actually some of the messages I've received from you know, everywhere from Canada to Ghana and like it's been it's been like nothing I could have imagined. So what was the main circuit through which the news traveled? Uh, well, I, I think um, having GCN on board. Uh, garnered an awful lot of attention and publicity that otherwise it, it wouldn't have had. Um, but I think there's, there's certain aspects to the story that are appealing to people, you know, is that there was potential to go quite a bit faster, but I think the fact that it was so close to the three hour mark when I broke the record made it that much more romantic. I think the fact I had a mechanical issue made it exciting. The fact that I already had the record, um, the fact that it was such a, a, a whole number, you know, three hours, it wasn't, three hours and 10 minutes at the time I had to break it. it. It appealed to people's psyche. And I think the fact that I was on a bike that was 10 years old, uh, a lot of people have said to me that that really was one of the, the best things for them because they don't have much money. And it made them realize that they don't need to go out and buy a $12,000 bike to be competitive. Um, and the fact that I'm not riding the Tour de France, you know, like this is an average guy who's a, who's a high school teacher who can go out and do something like this. So I think I think there were components that, that meant that when people did see it, they liked to sort of recommend to their friends to take a look at what, what had happened. And, uh, and, and it's, yeah, as I say, just been, just been amazing, the response. So 100 million riders in Strava are all saying, hey, huh, maybe I could do this. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people have come to me and said, you know, what's the secret? And, and I explained to them, like, the, something that we understand really well here in the the amateur time trialing scene because it's so big in the UK is the importance of aerodynamics. And I think we are so far ahead of the rest of the world just because um, it is a massive pastime here in the UK. Like, like there is in no other country. I can ride four time trials a week if I want in the UK or, or maybe more, maybe more. So there's a real business and an industry in terms of aero testing and, and all of this. And now a lot of the pro teams, you know, Ineos and Jumbo Visma, they're coming, to these amateur, well, they are professional, but kind of grassroots level um, businesses who are doing the aero testing and they are enhancing 
the performances of the, the pro tour teams, which is completely the opposite of what we've ever seen in the past, where the technology, the nutrition, it all trickles down from the professionals. But at, at this moment in time, we're seeing this role reversal. And, and what you saw me demonstrate there was the grasp, the understanding that we have in the UK of aerodynamics in cycling um, and how far ahead of most parts of the world we are. And, and, and when you apply that, what that can actually achieve for someone who's not world time trial champion. Really exciting. So, what, so what's, a, what's an example of something in aerodynamics that uh, perhaps a pro wouldn't understand or, uh, or certainly a, a weekend warrior, Sunday morning uh, Peloton rider would not understand? What's, what's, a, what's a good advantage that played to your strengths on the record attempt? So I can, t I can give you some examples of things that we started doing here first that the, the pros have now adopted. Uh, there's a company in the UK called No Pins. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. So they came up with the idea of putting, uh, instead of pinning your number to the back of your skin suit, uh, they, would, they would sew in a pocket. You, you could send them your skin suit, whoever makes it, and they will sew in a number pocket for you so that it's, because that acts like a bit of a sale. As well as you pin it to your back, it acts like a sale. So we had these um, seamless uh, continuation of, of, of the rider's back that had no flapping number. They did this and then straight away Jumbo Visma were the first team to adopt that. And we'd already been doing it here in the UK for a year or so. Um, the development of a lot of the materials, you know, the bike is the most obvious thing that people look at, but the, your body is creating 80% of the drag. So we've done a lot of playing around with um, different, testing thousands of different materials because, you know, intuitively you think you want a nice, slippery, smooth, silky surface on you. But, but if you understand what that does to the air, laminar flow breaks very easily from the surface. And you don't want that because if, you, you, if it breaks away, then you have this uh, stagnant air behind you. It slows you right down. So you're trying to create uh, turbulence on the boundary layer so that you see all these uh, dimpled and ribbed effects on the arms of riders' clothing now. Um, and, and the idea is to, to keep the air attached to you for as long as possible. And this, this kind of technology is, you know, spending $500 on a skin suit will save you so much more than spending $6,000 on a bike. It's, Very interesting. It's, it's really big. Yeah. 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 I mean, I could go through every single component on, on the bike for you. It's, uh, it's, it's something that we, well, I personally being a scientist as well, I just love, you know, the experiment every time I go out and ride the same Tuesday evening time trial, local time trial, and, and I'll change one variable and I'll see did that make me faster or slower. And I use, I use equipment like um, the Aeropod, which actually gives you a real time CDA. So I can go and test equipment on the road and move my head, move my hands. Uh, we, we, and they, people offer this as a business in the UK. You can go aero testing to a velodrome or to, to a wind tunnel and it's relatively affordable to most people now. You can spend $400 for a, for a couple of hours aero testing. And they'll have saved you 20 watts on average, you know, if it's the first time you visited one of these sessions. Um, just, just by, it could be just by moving your hands like one inch, one way. Let's say that's five watts right there. And this is, this is very accessible to us in the UK now. Have you thought about going into that business full time? Sounds as if you're passionate about it. Uh, it's certainly since this 100 mile record, yeah, it has transpired. Then I'm leaning that way. I'm leaning that way. And I'm, I'm developing the aero bars that I used in the, the record attempts. And I think that could be sort of a, a stepping stone into that. That's good. So you, um, now what would it take to make the leap from your normal day job to doing that? Uh, well, that depends. I mean, at the moment I'm doing, uh, I'm not on a full-time contract for GCN. I'm just doing a few pieces for them. 
So it's giving me, it's freeing up some time to pursue other things. Um, and ideally, yeah, I'm going to run with this and, you know, <laughs> maybe it falls flat on its face, who knows, but at least I'll have tried something else and I can go back to teaching and say, you know, <laughs> I gave it a go. Uh, I followed my real passions and yeah, we'll see. Now, what do your students think of um, what you did? Um, I've, so I've not been teaching for the, the past year. I came back to the UK. I was, I've, I've taught in the UK for a number of years, but I was also teaching in the Middle East in a British school in Oman. So I was out in Oman for about three and a half years and uh, yeah, stopped teaching to come back and do a master's degree. And uh, I still keep in touch with a lot of my students. And uh, yeah, I think, I think they've been, um, they've been enjoying it and, and, and sharing it and lots of, again, words of uh, encouragement and, uh, and thanks for, for sort of uh, inspiring them, which has been really nice. And how about, uh, so it sounds like you're, you're thinking about potentially a career shift um, towards equipment and, um, and pursuing that angle, but I'm, I'm sure you've daydreamed about making cycling itself a profession. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the lovely things. I mean, I don't pretend to be the guy who's going to win the Tour de France. I'm, 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 I have a bit of a talent for cycling, but I'm not, I'm not at that level. Um, and I think a lot of people can, and I'm getting a bit old for it now. I'm 34 now. So there, there are guys who can spend their whole lives as, or, uh, you know, racing lives as professionals and have very little to show for it. I think one of the things I love about cycling is because... I don't have to please anyone. I can use the equipment I want. I can do the races I want when I want. Um, and it's, and it remains enjoyable. And I've achieved an awful lot of success in the UK as an amateur. Like I say, we have a very large time trialing scene here and it is open to professionals as well. And sometimes you do, you do get some of the, the best riders in the world, like Bradley Wiggins or Alex Dowsett coming to the, the British time trial championships. But um, I've, I've won a couple myself. Um, I specialize in the longer distances. Um, I've been British 24 hour champion and, and uh, some other long, long distance championships that I've won. So that's been really fulfilling and really rewarding. And um, I have absolutely zero regrets. I mean, I've, I've cycled around the planet and I've done things like this and it's, uh, I think the bicycle, there's, there's many ways to enjoy a bicycle, you know, that can include racing that, and it's not just one kind of racing. It's not just road racing. And for me, my first love is probably cycle touring. Um, riding a bike is the best way. I always take my bike with me whenever I travel and I travel a lot to go and see a new place, take the bike. Um, my experience is crossing, crossing the world, crossing the United States have just been enriched by being that vulnerable person on a bicycle because everyone, doesn't matter what country you're in, they come up to you and they offer you food and they want to talk to you and they want to care for you and they take you into their homes at night. And uh, yeah, like the bike is a brilliant thing. Don't feel the need to just go out there and road race and and do what people tell you. Just find what excites you and, uh, and, and pursue it because, as I say, the bicycle offers so much. So what's your favorite tour that you've done? Well, um, yeah, so in 2013-14, I cycled around the planet. I fully circumnavigated the planet. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think anything's ever really going to top that. That was an education of course, in life yeah. that, that, you know, seven years in high school or whatever would never teach you. Um, and and it was heartwarming because you know i traveled i spent six weeks pedaling through iran right and you imagine you imagine what you, you someone's going to say in the uk or the us if you tell them you're going on holiday to iran yeah but the reality is if you meet anyone who's been there they'll tell you they're the, the kindest friendliest most wonderful people you've ever met and i think i think that's 
one of the beauties of, of cycle touring is that it, it dispels all these preconceptions. The media is full of sensationalism to sell headlines. But the reality is that all human beings share a common language and that's kindness and compassion. And you're very, very unlucky if you ever experience anything other than that. So, I mean, I, it's hard to pick a favorite country I traveled through on my way around. They all had so many different things, things to offer. Um, I mean, Ch China sticks in my mind just because it was so big. If you take Alaska out of the equation, it's virtually the same size as the US, right? And it took me through the winter, like three months to cross there, nearly a month not speaking to anyone crossing the Gobi Desert. So when you, when you survive something like that, you, you, you grow fond of it because, because of what you've had to push through. Um, you know, I, love, I love the states, the Grand Canyon, some of the national parks, just the, the warmness of people and the variety from state to state, you know, how different it was when I was traveling through the deep South compared to like down the West coast. Um, and then Iran really the, the, the kindest, friendliest people I've ever met on this planet, uh, just their culture. So, uh, yeah, pedaling around the world was, was something that, uh, was the most enriching thing I've ever done in my life. So in Iran, did they want to talk to you about world politics or, or was it more just asking you about the bike in your life? Um, all of it. All of it. And, yeah. you know, I, I can tell you some, I can tell you some things that blew my mind that would blow your mind. They, the majority of people, they actually love America. They love the States. And, uh, they, you know, a lot of the world aspires to the, you know, the, the, um, the American dream and the ideal, and, right. and especially when things are difficult there. And one of the strangest things, someone said to me, well-educated person, what we want more than anything, what we would love is a war with America. And I, I was like, what? And they said, no, it's the only way we can be freed. It's the only way we can be liberated from these, these ayatollahs, these religious leaders who oh, are in power. Fascinating, wow. It's like America's, America are the ones who need to come along and free us. And, uh, and so that, again, the majority of people there were like, absolutely love Germany, uh, particularly like Germany, the French they're very fond of, and they, they loved America, the most people I met. Um, so it was, it was a very fascinating insight, yeah. Uh, and, but, but even there, people would open their homes to you and say, hey, it's, it's, uh, it's about to start raining. You should really spend the night in our house. Oh, like multiple times every day. Like yeah. you wouldn't believe, like you wouldn't believe. Um, and because it's very difficult to travel outside Iran on an Iranian passport, it was quite a novelty for them to see someone from the outside. So um, it, was, it was an exciting opportunity for them to interact with us. Um, and, and the culture is they have this word called Taurof. They just give gifts and to strangers. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, um, I, I could talk about Iran for a long time, but it, it's, just, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, yeah, politics is one thing, world leaders, but, but people themselves, um, sadly, you know, they're, they're suffering over there because of the embargoes that we're, we're placing on countries like Iran, but you know, people are, people are generally good. That's my belief. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, it, but something like that, does that, I mean, obviously it's better than sitting on the couch, but that's probably not ideal for training for time trials, right? So my, my grandfather was quite a cyclist um, many years ago when, the, when there was a very different approach to, to training and, you know, everyone did a lot of long touring miles in the, this is in like the, the 30s, 1930s to get fit for races. And obviously we understand a lot more now, training is more scientific. But as a small child, I'd always, I'd visit, I'd visit my grandfather and see all these medals hanging on the wall when I went to the house. And he was, he had British records and he was, he was a long distance man, 24 hour champion, right? So from a, from a young age, this is what I aspired to was to become the British 24 hour time trial champion, which is a very strange thing for a six year old <laughs> child. To watch. Um, but then when this journey around the world got really tough, when I was in, um, 
when I was in China crossing these deserts and I hadn't spoken to anyone for weeks and it was like being on a treadmill because it was just pedal nine hours a day and all you see is sand and then go to sleep and do it again the next day. And I, um, I found a coping strategy, a coping mechanism. And that was to tell myself this was all training. I was going to go back and I was going to win yeah. this, this national 24 hour time trial. And when I, when I lined up on the start line, um, I'd only been back for back to the UK for three weeks. I had, you know, like in the States, I'd done some 16 hour days crossing the Nevada desert because there was, there was nowhere to get water for like over 200 miles from one point to the next. And I'd been playing around with my caffeine and my food throughout the night and practicing everything. I was doing 60, I did a 63 hour week and a 61 hour week on Strava crossing the States. They were big oh, old, wow. big old stints. So when I turned up on that start line, you know, I could completely accept that someone could be physically stronger than me, but that training, the things I'd been through, no one could be mentally stronger than me. And I, I, I told myself that. And I was literally sprinting out of every corner. And, and, you know, like I was, my head was in the game from the word go. And I won it by a good 20 miles against like uh, some very, very strong competitors. Um, and so, the, and it was weird because my, my threshold FTP wasn't particularly high, but I just had the capacity like burning like a diesel engine at like, without tiring it like 90% of FTP for like a full day. And I've never experienced anything quite like it since. Um, and that was, those were the, all the endurance miles from going around the world. So, so for some of the longer stuff, those, um, those long days certainly paid off. Yeah. Interesting. And, and what did you do for nutrition on the 24 hour attempt? Um, I had it quite carefully planned out. I had um, a team of six helpers and we measured, uh, I think, about 40 grams of carbohydrates an hour from liquids and then the other half from from gels and bars and then a solid i had two pit stops one at eight hours one at 16 hours for five minutes where i had some got some warm solid food down me mm. um but yeah i think when you go longer um certainly longer than even than 100 miles then then the nutrition becomes the limiting factor and something you really need to get right and practice and dial in and um i've learned learned a lot since then as well um that it becomes more more and more scientific i think the longer you go if it's a it's a two or three hour race you can get by with like bananas and water but but go longer then that's when the nutrition is important well i know for some of our 100 or 200 mile running races in the states people will say they're eating competitions with some running mixed in i i like that analogy yeah no right. yeah, i totally, totally get that yeah yeah because you, you got to get that science right to be able to succeed so yeah um Oh, fascinating, uh, fascinating side roads there. But uh, I want to come back to the record attempt. Absolutely. So, so describe for us the, um, uh, the uh, Road Records Association. It's been around since 1888. So w w what does that mean to, to uh, the UK and the world? Well, it's, it's, it's so British. It is, it is like quintessentially, uh, you know, British. Um, I, I set a world record across Oman in the Middle East, uh, which was about, just shy of 800 miles, 750 miles along the length of the country. And the, the Arabs are only just getting into cycling and, and they're enjoying it. And it's been great living out there and, and, and helping them train and develop as a cycling nation in Oman. But they'd never seen anything like this before. Like I said, this is a very, you know, time trialing, especially long distance racing, whether it, you know, in Britain, I'm, I'm not just talking about on bikes, but people on foot or, or on horseback. This is, this is we, we, <laughs> since the Victorian era, we've been, We've been chasing times and distances and uh, 
so so yeah no, that's one of the things i love about it and and in oman they love that and i love the fact that this record i um they are engraving the shield right now but it's got it's got people's names on there that date back to 1885 you know and and how some people have gone to me wow that time's amazing there's a guy who did it in six and a half hours you know 130 years ago and everyone was going to him that's amazing how can anyone cycle 100 miles that fast and and in terms of British cycling, if you know who some of these names are, there you know there are guys who on that tro uh, that shield who went to the Olympics, who were the cream of the crop, the best of British cyclists. And you know I'm not expecting to hold this this record forever. Um, I know someone will come along and take it. It's just wonderful to be part of this this immense history. And I think that every time someone comes along and breaks one of these records, um, it just it it shines a, a spotlight on it again. All these these endeavors and these performances that people in the past have done. Um, and have undertaken and it's not just it, although they're on British roads it's not just open to to Brits uh, we've had a lot of professional riders in the past decades ago coming over from I think it was a very famous Austrian man who was coming over mm. and breaking a lot of records and it's great publicity for sponsors and you know it's it's a real um, showpiece you know when this is the fastest any humans being for this this distance and it can can make headlines all around the world as as this has, has done this time um, so it's it's a bit different to our you know you, you're not out there against one other competitor it's um it's more of a demonstration of, of what is possible at, the, at that snapshot in time with the technology we have and the understanding of training nutrition um and various other things and i'm not pretending to be better than any of those athletes that have held it before it's it's just as i say a demonstration of of how the sport is progressing and how much quicker we are able to move for the same effort did your grandfather ever attempt this I believe he, he had a number of um, road record association records. There are, there are all sorts. He had uh, 24 hour records up in the north of England. Um, but he was, he was very much the, the longer distance man. I, I'm, I'm fairly handy as kind of, well, I don't know if you call it a middle distance, the hundred miles, but, right, uh, right, right. but sort of, fit, yeah, maybe two hours upwards is where I start to come into my own, um, I suppose, as an athlete. And then, yeah, I can, I, I quite like the challenges that go on on for days i'd love to have a go at the race across america one day if i ever got the opportunity wow yeah that that's a wild one and, but but your grandfather's name is not on this particular plaque that no you're this on. year no, yeah. no okay got it uh and so it sounds like conditions were close to ideal on the day you attempted to it uh, attempted it well i mean i um I, I took the record twice 12 days apart and to give some kind of indication the it was roughly every every extra mile an hour mile an hour I could get on the wind was giving me taking a minute off my time wow. um, and it was a much better wind as I say the, the second time that was the big the big factor that, that took me ten minutes quicker but there were there were people who were very passionate about the road records association and they were writing to me straight away going you didn't get the right wind you know you could have gone fifteen minutes faster if you had the right wind on the but, first on the first ride you mean no or? on the on the second attempt oh interesting um but i have zero regrets i think like i said to you earlier i think the time that i recorded was a very romantic time it would have it wouldn't have had the excitement if you know i shattered it by the three hour mark by 15 minutes it was yeah. it, it made it look like this is something that like you know it's very <laughs> difficult for man to, to to achieve and um yeah no, at the moment i have no ambition to go back i know i have the potential probably to go below two hours 50 minutes but uh 
yeah that that was that that never would have been as appealing as you know you can never take away the fact i was the first man to go under under three hours and that will always be special to me no it is a great round number it's like a, a four minute mile or any of those other absolutely you know two yeah. hour marathon yeah it, it's a great standard i was i was in the states last year when kipchoge broke the uh the two hour mark for the marathon and i think i was where i was driving up in idaho or something and i it was late at night i heard it on the in the car radio and I was like no way that's amazing and it, it just it captured the world um you know when you have this convergence of time and distance that seem just slightly out of reach of, of mankind and then someone does it it's uh it's pretty special has Kipchoge reached out to you on Instagram or Twitter <laughs> no I don't, I don't think it's quite as exciting as uh come on well, not, not on his radar unfortunately well, he's he's a he's a multimillionaire, so you know he doesn't doesn't fool but, around with mere mortals like us. Well, but also like I um he's a, he's I'm humbled by him because he he still lives a very basic life and he does a lot to help other people in his community and his Absolutely. country. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, and it's wonderful to have role models like that out there. You know, who who haven't let the fame and the the wealth get to their heads and they're still so down to earth. Um, I'm a big big fan of Kipchoge's. Agreed. Agreed. So um. So I think what a lot of people would find interesting who, who didn't follow the story closely is that you did this on an open road. There was, there was traffic sipping by you the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which absolutely. And I've, I've had, uh, I've chatted with friends in the States and had had an interview with Mark Florence who does the cycling time trial podcast. Um, and I think that's quite, uh, quite shocking for people who aren't familiar with, with that kind of setup, but we, we, we run all of our, not all of us, but a lot of our time trials here in the UK on roads like that. In fact, a number of the roads uh, that I was using on that 100 mile time trial were, were the same roads we use sort of weekend in, weekend out, uh, week after week. And we, we typically use them on a Sunday morning when the traffic density is low. And, and as scary as it might look having these, these fast moving vehicles on there, if you look at the statistics, I mean, the, the number of incidents are incredibly low. And they are, I think, about four times lower than on rural courses where there are bends, you know, visibility is poor. With, with, with these roads, you're moving at a similar speed to the traffic. There's great visibility. Um, and I had two follow cars, so nothing was, nothing was going to come careering into the back of me. And they were pulling out on the, 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 as the, uh, the slip roads came in to protect me from any traffic. Uh, I see. Coming in. Okay. So to, to, be, to be perfectly honest, I... I've never really felt much safer on a bicycle than I did then as scary as it intuitively it might look. Um, and the, the, the traffic that's coming along as far away as it was for me is definitely helping to allow me to move faster. And it's, you could see that in the ah. modeling was, was, was bringing down the, the drag coefficient. So I don't know how familiar you are with um, drag coefficient numbers. A, a little bit, but yeah, walk us through it. So, you know, if they say if someone can get down to point two then then that's kind of world tour that's really really low numbers typical time trialist is probably 0.24 um i think levi leipheimer he was renowned for being one of the slipperiest guys out there i think he could get down to 0.18 um so my cda before i started we had measured it at 0.163 wow which is like off the chart like i have a i have a body and body shape that allows me to achieve um, incredibly low numbers. It's to do with where my back hinges and uh, the, the, the length of how low I can have my saddle, the length of certain limbs, the curvature on 
certain parts of my body it's 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 really um it's one of those things like some cyclists have a massive heart or a runner might have a massive heart and they're just born with it i was just born with a shape that lends itself to being really really slippery in the air um i can make my shoulders i don't have narrow shoulders but i can make them almost vanish in front of me um and with it with all the aero testing that we do as well i've managed to get this this crazy number and then when you added the traffic on top um my cda was coming out of 0.135 yeah so that that's the secret if 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 people are failing to fathom this or understand this that's also very 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 difficult to understand if you know much about aerodynamics but i basically was was um disturbing the air so little that uh i was able to move move this fast but but does the traffic help because it because the air uh does it create a slipstream effect or or just um sort of agitates the air so it's not you're not running into a solid wall of air yeah it's 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 more of that um yeah i'm not close enough to any car to be getting a a slipstream from it. right that's definitely against the rules um but using the traffic on the open road yeah as it comes past it will move those those stagnant air molecules they will will be moving at, at some speed before you already try and uh tap your own hole through them so so that that all helps to lower the drag coefficient i understood and um so my understanding is you used a uh, used gel called Mountain Fuels. I, I assume that may be a sponsor to you, uh, or maybe as an amateur, you're not allowed to have a sponsor to, uh, but do you love it? Was it a factor? Uh, I, I started working with um, Mountain Fuel earlier this year. They came on board to help me with the, the British 12 hour time trial championship, which, which I medaled in. Um, and it was a very close race. There was, I was three miles away from the win, um, but I had a brilliant ride. My pace, it, you know, you've, you've, we've got graphs where we plotted the um, the pace of all the riders from their GPX files at the end. And my, my line is just like a continuous linear progression throughout the whole race. And they're using things like uh, chia seeds, ground mm. up, so sl slow releasing carbohydrates, but they're also using pectin gels. So this is, this is they, they say this is the, the revolution in um, sports nutrition, the fact that some people, especially as you go longer, you can get a lot of dis disruption in your gut, um, gastric distress from the acidity of all the sugars. Yes. So there are certain companies that are now encapsulating the sugars in, in gels, where, whether it's an alginate or a pectin matrix, so that it releases far more slowly as it travels through your gut and it doesn't cause the same kind of irritation. Um, so I was using some of their pectin gels and um, laced with ca caffeine, but for hundred miles, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a long distance cyclist. My, my fat burning, my beta oxidation is really good. So I didn't, I didn't consume probably more than about 300 grams um, of carbs. And that was, that was more than enough. That was just like one big, one big sachet. So yeah, on something so short, I call it that for myself. That right, right. feeding wasn't, wasn't such an issue. And I had, I, I think I had um, two and a half liters of liquid in my camelback bladder. Uh, and because it was a cool, a cool day as well, I think I only drank a liter and a half of fluid and that that did have some um some carbohydrates mixed into and some electrolytes and is that is um fluid replenishment necessary for a, for a three-hour ride like this i mean it's it's partly a trade-off right in aerodynamics and weight and... well that actually that i would have run the camelback bladder uh regardless of the the liquid so when i drunk a lot of it i reinflated it because we found that that um rounding the shape on the the front of the rider for me personally, it was saving me about four watts because, yeah, the, the air is just moving in a, in a cleaner, 
uh, manner. So it, it, it's, it's uh, killing two birds with one stone, improving aerodynamics and providing the, the liquid. And yeah, I'm sure after two hours, I would have been in a, a lot of trouble if I was, if I was starting to dehydrate at that point. Yeah. Certainly that, at that intensity. Yeah. But, uh, but I know like with Killian Journey, the famous mountain runner, he's, he's, he's famous for consuming very, very little liquid. Has, has your body become accustomed to not needing much liquid on a ride or you, you still need it as a human? I, th I think in the kind of event that he does, um, you know, he's running up mountains and all sorts of things. Power to weight is, is so critical. Good point. Um, what I was doing there, what is critical is power to drag coefficient. And, and actually the weight, which is very different. This, this is why it's a very different discipline and different kind of event. Um, if you're carrying more weight, that just turns into momentum. Mm. Uh, because there's so few, I mean, it wasn't completely flat, but there are so few junctions and, and stoplights and anything like that, that you have to contend with. Um, you hold that. So again, it's different to riding a road race up a mountain or, or even a criterion where you're sprinting out of corners and you need, if you, if you're looking at the, um, the formula for, for, you know, how to, how to accelerate and get back onto that wheel, then the weight is a large part of that. But in what I did there, weight's, weight's not really the issue. So it's not something um, I needed to compromise on was, was the, the drinking as, as large or as small as that could have been. Um, it was best to get that, get that right throughout. Understood. And, and what does, um, what's a normal day of nutrition look like for you? So I, I eat a plant-based diet um, pretty, uh, pretty much all the time. So very healthy, lots of, lots of fruit and lots of vegetables. Um, and yeah, I, I eat well. I'm, I'm never trying, I mean, in the past I have got myself down to, a to, to my race weight, which is probably about, I work in kilograms. So 67 kilograms. Okay. And for this, I was probably about maybe 71 kilograms. Um, so yeah, I, I've taken myself to that point before, but I think if I just let my body, um, eat what it feels it needs to eat then for like i say for disciplines like this if i'd been four kilograms lighter it would make very little difference it might have even the the trade-off between losing the weight and actually changing some of the curves on my body the curves may have been beneficial to the aerodynamics um and i think if 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 you're not starving yourself it's a little bit of an extreme way of saying it but if you're not dropping your body fat to that, right right that level then you're at less risk of picking up infections and your immune system is stronger. Um, so yeah, I prefer to let my body just sit at the weight that it's, it, it naturally likes to sit at. I mean, I think it looks healthier and allows me to do what I like to do in my sport without any, any compromise. Well, because Lance was always famous for getting that, his tour face, right? Where his cheeks would become that's sunken it. and uh, yes, yeah. yeah, he seemed, but it sounds like for your event, that is, that's less important to get yourself emaciated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I have been quite successful in road racing in the past, and um, and events where I have to climb, and and that is a necessity, as you say. And I have, yeah, people have said to me, "Well, I can see your jaw," and you know, it all pops out. And, <laughs> um, but I, I I don't have to think about it, and I stay at this weight. If I even if I want to lose like two or three kilograms, it's a real it's a real battle, and it's not pleasant. And I enjoy my food too much. And as I say, I think I think you're more prone to to illness. Um, if you, if you do that yeah and so what, what will you have for dinner tonight what's what's a standard dinner for you um i have probably cooking a, a tofu stir fry tonight okay so tofu and with uh with other veggies mixed into the probably, stir fry probably about 
uh, ten different vegetables and yeah, yeah, all the flavors and all the rice and that keeps me going for a long time. Okay, so you're not afraid of carbs? No, I mean with with a vegan diet, it's predominantly carbohydrates. Yeah, and the go-to carbohydrates more rice than pasta. Um, I, I like to mix it up. I don't I don't stick to one particular food. Um, I enjoy food. I cook. I cook all different kinds of cuisines and um, yeah. So, so yeah, sometimes I eat rice, sometimes I eat potatoes, sometimes I eat pasta. Uh, it, it, it all seems to work for me. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, and so, so what's next? Now you mentioned you're not dying to go out and lower the mark again, but would, if uh, my understanding is one of your, one of your good friends was on your support crew and he was a previous holder of this mark, uh, Mike, if I, if I get the story right, but um but would you, you know, if he goes out and bests you this weekend, would you, would you think about redoing it in another week or two? Yeah, Mike was a, Mike was a big influence for me. He, he's never actually had the, the hundred mile record. He's, he's got, he's That's got right. more, more of what we call the, the blue ribbon kind of event, which is, is our little equivalent of your race across America that we run in our own way, which is Land's End to John O'Groats. So from, the, from the, the two furthest points across the UK, from the bottom tip to the top, um, he's, he's cycled that 700, no, what is it? 830 miles in 43 hours. Wow. Um, and, and again, that's, so I think the hundred and the, the hundred mile record and the Land's End to Gross record are the, the two that have had, have the most history to them and they, they, they garner the most attention. Um, and so we, we have actually talked about me, one of the potential records for, for me to go for is, is the Land's End, is the, the end to end record. Um, but these things aren't cheap. You know, I've looked into the, the race across America and you're looking at a minimum of like $30,000 each. This isn't the length of that, but it's, it's still, um, it adds up. It's not, it's not cheap. So if, if a sponsor came along and wanted to support me for that, then that would be great. Um, also potentially the first man to, to cycle 40 kilometers in under 40 minutes, 25 miles in under 40 minutes. Um, that might be something I do. There's a few things. There's, there's a company called Muckoff who, uh, who are sponsoring me next year to promote their um, oversized pulley wheels and their super efficient drivetrain system. Um, doing some filming with them next next week, so we'll discuss what they what they would like me to do and what they would like to sponsor me to do. And, and I'm working with GCN now as well, so I'm, I'm sure they'll have a few challenges they'd like to to put me through. <laughs> so, but so you won't go back to this mark uh, to the hundred mile, but if someone broke it, you might think about it. Um. I, I, I genuinely be delighted for whoever whoever beats it, and I would love to be there to watch them do it. Um, yeah, I'd see. I don't know how I'd feel um, if if I knew that it was still within me to go quicker than that mark. Then maybe, uh, but it's not something I feel like I need to need to defend. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's just it's just wonderful to be the first man to ever go under three hours, and and someone can beat it, beat my time, but no one will ever take that away. So that's that's special. And I think with the things I've achieved on a bike, I usually, I do something and then I, I always look for the next challenge and try something different. Don't go back to the same thing. So we'll see. That's great. Um, well, cool. You're such a good sport to spend time with us. We'll, we'll hit you with a couple of very quick questions uh, here at the end that we've, we've, uh, we've pinged off some of our cool. other guests. So um, we'll, we'll get, a, get a deeper view into your soul here, but, um, but we'll go with, uh, we'll start off with your favorite movie of all time. Oh, <laughs> how do I pick that? Well, you could have prepared me for this. Um, <laughs> nah, that's why it's, 
Okay, let's let's go. Let's I don't know. It's it's not the most intellectual, but let's go with Forrest Gump. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, that's very apt for for what you do. Uh, for navigation. Maybe, maybe who knows? Maybe that was a little bit of the inspiration, and I never realized it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Favorite book. Um, maybe a thousand splendid sons. Oh, I've heard of this. Who wrote that? Uh, it's the same same guy who wrote the Kite Runner. I'm trying to think. Of his that's name. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's supposed to be an amazing book. I've never read it that, is. but yeah, yeah, right. yeah. He's a, he's a beautiful writer, and oh, I, I love that. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I love I love that book. Yeah, great. Um, if you uh, if you could have dinner with one person, living or deceased, who, who would it be? Um, oh, Nelson Mandela. Oh, that's a great one. No one has said that. That would be fascinating. Very good. Yeah. Um, morning workouts, midday workouts, evening workouts. What's your favorite time um, to ride? I guess I guess for for what you do, it's all day long. But well, e evening, my body always works the best in the evening. But then yeah. I usually can't get to sleep afterwards, so it's a trade off. But, but probably uh, right. probably the evenings. Um, yeah, I like the evenings. Uh, you use headphones, music, podcasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You do. Um, so what do you like to listen to? So I was, um, that more of the intellectual stuff. I think the, the podcast, when I was pedaling around the world, I was listening to things like BBC's life in our time and just mm. all sorts of things about science and culture and politics, um, stuff like that. If, if it's, uh, if it's a race or something I'm trying to get ready for, then probably some, uh, electronic dance music or something really, <laughs> it's, it's what gets me going. So did you use um, anything? Did you have anything in your ears for the 257? No, when we when we're racing over here, we're not allowed to uh, have any any head, headphones in. Oh, because it could be so, communications or yeah. No, no, just, just no? For the, from, the, from the safety aspect, just so okay. you're aware of because they're not closed roads. You just need to be as aware as possible of the, uh, your surroundings and what's what's going on, which I think All is right. a good, good shout. To be fair. No, absolutely. Uh, all right, last question for you: the best mentor you've had in your life and career. Um, so I've actually almost finished writing a book about pedaling around the world. Oh, great! And I talk about this man a lot in in the book. Uh, we had a very interesting relationship. I'm I'm on a, a coaching discussion with him tonight, but he's he's called Dr. Gordon Wright, and. Mm -hmm. He coached a woman called Nicole Cook to Olympic gold in the road race in Beijing, 2008. Um, and he's coached many British time trial champions. He's, he was renowned as one of the best coaches here in the UK. And he came across me. We, came, we, we, we crossed paths. I started riding for a team that he was... He, he's getting on a bit now. He's, he's almost 80. Um, so, so that's sort of beyond him. And he, he, I think he noticed there was something in me, uh, an ability to achieve quite a lot and uh he I, he wasn't my coach but we would we bounce ideas off one another and he'd always call me a maverick and say you know you, you're not you don't prepare for these things in the traditional way and um his life was, had always been cycling and there was this british championship that he was he was sure that i was going to win for him and his team and and i said i can't do it this year gordon that this is the year i'm 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 going to go and cycle around the world and he he'd take he'd lost the he'd lost a, um, a son to cancer at the age his son was oh. nineteen, and he didn't have any children. And he when he believes in you, he almost adopts you as 
as one of his children. And he almost sort of disowned me. He didn't talk to me again. And I thought it was really unfair. And then when I was traveling through China's deserts, I emailed him and we started communicating again. And he was, he said, what are these tribes people like? How are you surviving? How are you getting water and electricity? And, and so we started this communication and I said, Gordon, when I come back, I want to win this, this British 24 hour championship. And, uh, he said, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to fall flat on your face and you're not going to be able to convert that, that, that speed, that slow speed, or you're going to break the national record. And he became very instrumental in putting the team together and helped me formulate the, the, the training around what I was doing and the, re the whole race plan and helped me to win the, the national 24 hour. And we've been really close since then. And um, he's given me a lot of guidance and he's worked. He's just got amazing stories of, you know, with Laurent Jalabert and all these famous people sure. in France when he was, um, and he, he's just, he's fascinating to listen to. And a lot of people don't realize this, but he was, he was the real reason behind Britain's Olympic success in cycling over the last couple of decades since Chris Boardman. He was the man who trained Chris Boardman's coach and gave Chris Boardman's coach a lot of the ideas that he had. And it all came, it all came from Gordon, the whole British cycling thing that is now that is team Ineos he was the, he was, he's the very humble, unsung hero of it all, who started it all up. Um, and I could listen to him for hours and he's, he's uh, someone that most people would never have heard of. But to me, he's been, been very special in my life. Now, will that be a chapter in the book or, or is it strung woven throughout? It's, it's, well, so the book is, it's really interesting. The book is quite unique because I tell the story. So I start with the 24 hour race, the whole, the, oh. the, and then as, as I go through the race, my mind wanders back to the year that's brought me there. I like and that construct. Yeah, great. So, so I talk at the beginning about, you know, Gordon and how I'd been abandoned. And then later in the book, he comes back and this, we start this communication again. And then he's, he's there at the very end. Um, so, yeah, it's a different concept. People write, tra they write travel writing and they write about sporting success. But to combine the two, I think is the unique twist I have on it all. Um, it's this journey that's given me the ability mentally as well as physically to, to be the best. That's fascinating stuff. No, and he sounds like he's a pretty complex, multi-layered guy. So it's very uh, much so. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Well, hey, well, thank you so much for spending time with us. And um, no, we, we can't thank you enough. Most of our, our um, readers and listeners are, um, well, they're all endurance athletes. They're primarily runners, but I just think there's, there's a lot to learn from, you know, some of the mental lessons and some of the training that you've done and nutrition. And I just feel like that, that translates, a lot of this translates across sports and across all of our lives. Well, like I said to you, a couple of my, I've, I've run in the past. I've been a bit of a runner myself. And but regardless of that, a couple of my big inspirations for this were people like Roger Bannister's and his four minute mile and Kipchoge and his sub two hour marathon. And, and the more I looked into Roger Bannister's sub four minute mile, um, the more I realized why it was so important for people. And he did this, he did this post second world war and Britain particularly was in a terrible state, you know, rebuilding. Right. And, and I, I, I felt some kind of parallel with that because the world is in this terrible state right now. And a lot of things seem impossible to people with this pandemic. And, you know, as much as a, of a cliche as it might sound, I'd just like people to sort of see that something that seems impossible, whether it's on a bike or not, is that that whole mentality is transferable. Everyone told Roger, Roger Bannister and they believed at the time the four minute mile was beyond human capacity. It couldn't be beaten. That was where humans stopped. And he did it. And it changed people's whole psyche, not just about running, but about what they could achieve in the world. 
And I just, if, you know, some of the messages I've had have been amazing and just people being inspired to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise thought they could do. And, and that's really one of the main reasons that, that I did it in the first place. Because, so it transcends more than cycling. It transcends running and it trans, transcends life as a whole. Uh, that, that is great perspective. And now, now I'm going to go spend a half hour Googling around on Roger Bannister and the post-war stuff. I'd forgotten that part of the story. I just, you know, it's breaking the four hour mark itself and seeing those great old black and white photographs and the, the old running kits. Um, but, but yeah, I'd forgotten that part of it, that it really meant a lot to post-war Britain. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Good stuff. Hey, well, thank you so much. Um, Hey, and we'll, um, 